Good morning, y'all. So good to be here with you. Welcome to City Light Bennington. My name is Glenn. Get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, we're in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Genesis. This is a really important book, uh, as they all are, but it's important because it lays the foundation for us for the rest of the story that our Bible tells. Uh, Genesis presents to us many things that need to be resolved in our world. It presents to us uh, a, a, a foundation for the New Testament. The New Testament references the book of Genesis over 200 times. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. To not understand Genesis is to have a hard time making sense of the rest of your Bible. So um, let, me, let me do this. You guys have watched the TV shows on Netflix where you hear at the very beginning of the episode, previously on, <laughs> right? Um, so just to, to keep it simple, previously in Genesis, we were in chapter two. And in Genesis chapter two, God creates man and woman. He forms husband and wife. And I wanna draw your attention to Genesis chapter two, the very last verse. It says this, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. No shame. Everyone in this room has shared in feelings of shame. Worthlessness. What is my value? Where is my life going? Why the conflict with my spouse? Why butting heads with my children? Why why, why, why? Did you know there was a time in our world, believe it or not, where there was no such thing? It was all good, all total peace, all joyful, all happy. There was no contrast to those things. And yet we look in our world today and we see a very different picture. All you need is an internet connection. All you need is one cycle of the news. And you know deep down in your bones there is something very wrong with the world that we live in. Deeply flawed and wrong. In fact, we just keep coming up with ways to describe it and new words and, and definitions. Um, the list of, of reasons why our world is a broken place get longer and longer and longer. We've got corruption and war and hate and disease and sickness and selfishness and greed and abuse and murder and theft, fear, guilt, perversion. Why are things this way? Why are things this way? You ever stop to just ask that question? Why does it have to be this way. Well, there are theories that abound in our world. This is the, the topic of philosophy conversations on university campuses for millennia. This is what people love to debate and try to figure out. Libraries of books have been written on this topic. Where did it come from? Uh, dualism says that by its way of thinking, there are dual realities. There's a, there's a good and there's a bad, and they, they're constantly fighting in our world to dominate and take over the other one. There's dualism, there's humanism, very, very big in our culture right now and ever increasing, that says life is what we make it. So in another million years, if we just have more psychology and 
more innovation and more medicine and more science and more education and more enlightenment and more critical thinking and more anything, we will eventually get to a utopia that we all desire. We know this is flawed thinking. If you ask the Christian what is wrong with the world, I'll sum up the answer for you in Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. See, without Genesis 3, you cannot, are you hearing this? You cannot make sense of the world that we live in. Without Genesis 3, you cannot make sense of what is wrong with it, what is wrong with us, what's broken and wrong with our heart. Without Genesis 3, we don't understand what's underneath sin, where sin and evil come from. Most importantly, without Genesis 3, you cannot make sense of the exclusive need that everyone everywhere has for salvation in Jesus Christ. After this chapter, from this point on, the remaining 1,186 chapters of your Bible is devoted to redeeming the great tragedy that we see in these verses. So to miss out on an understanding of this is to miss out on an understanding of all Scripture. And that's precisely why over the next four weeks, we're going to slow down. Two weeks ago, chapter 1, last week, chapter 2. For the next four weeks, we're going to camp in Genesis chapter We want to understand what is happening in these verses. What are the ramifications of it in our world today? And what does God promise to do about it? So where are we going this morning? We're going to observe this morning the first five verses. That's it, of chapter three. And here's some of what we're going to ask. We're going to ask, who is this serpent? And where does he come from? And then we're going to ask, what were the tactics that he employed in his conversation with Eve that led to sin and death in the first place? Y'all have heard this phrase before. It's been reworded a million times and used in tons of different contexts. You've, You've heard it. If you hadn't, I'd be surprised. But it comes from author George Santayana, and it says this. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So let me pray. God, you've gone to great lengths to preserve your word for our eyes this morning. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. Bring healing, bring freedom, bring truth to bear against a world of lies. Minister in personal, patient ways this morning to us and expose rebuke, destroy the work of the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick it up in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. I want to pause right there. Who is this serpent? Listen, uh, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. The best way to read and study your Bible when you come across a question is to say, what else does the Bible have to say about 
this. And so we learn who this serpent is from the Apostle John. In Revelation 20, it says he sees the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Maybe you're reading this and you're very logical and you ask, how is a snake talking? How is a serpent speaking? Well, listen, how a spirit inhabits a creature we don't know. Uh, what I do know is that in Numbers 22, God speaks through a donkey. Um, here's some questions we could ask. Is it Satan speaking through the serpent? Scientists have found speech patterns and mechanisms in animals. Could Eve have understood the hiss of the snake? Is it self-talk in Eve's mind? Is, is the serpent just a title given to Satan, but he's manifested as a Hugh Jackman at the peak of his Wolverine conditioning? I don't know. Here's, here's what I do know. Genesis 3 is not teaching us about zoology. We know this is a heavenly being disguising itself as a serpent to deceive. And it's not how he speaks, but what he says that matters. And so I want to ask the question, what happened before this moment in the garden? Like, you've heard this story before. It's just, there's the serpent. He's talking to Eve. Here comes the fall. Where did he come from? I want to dive into that for a moment. We learn about Satan from the prophet Ezekiel. It all started with a rebellion in heaven. In Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a dual nature of prophecy happening here. We're going to read a couple passages from Ezekiel and from Isaiah. Both of them have to do with the king of Babylon in their context and the king of Tyre. But in your Bible, you'll learn that sometimes prophetic language can mean more than one thing. And so we learn from both of these passages something about this evil one. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. Remember that word. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless and all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. That title, guardian. In other translations, it's cherub. It means an angel of a high rank and prominence. In scripture, we see Satan in the company of the archangel Michael. Satan is not lacking in power. We, we need to understand this. There is no lack of, of, of power. We, we tend to minimize him, which could be a major issue in our walk as Christians on this earth today. The word of God addresses him as the, the prince of this world, the God of this age, the prince and power of the air, who we wrestle with and we learn from Scripture that the whole world lies in his power. We learn something of Satan's motive from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14. 
how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world, for you said to yourself, here it is, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. No, instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Satan's rebellion stemmed from his pride. And get this, a third of heaven's hosts, heaven's angels, followed his lead. Scripture tells us that Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. Consider the prophetic language of Revelation 12. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky and he threw them down to the earth. Why am I talking about all of this, church? Satan and the demonic are real. They're not fictional. There is an unseen realm that influences our lives every single day. Church, please, please, be warned. If you're within the sound of my voice, take heed. You've been put on notice. You and I are in hostile territory. This is not a game. The enemy is real, and I know the hosts on Caleb may not talk about this on their morning show, right? Uh, but Satan and demons have a mission to ruin the divine plans of God, to steal, kill, and destroy God's people. Satan hates God's creation. Satan hates God's church. And finally, as we see in this first verse, Satan is shrewd, crafty, cunning. This means that, yes, of course, he operates in the dark, violent the horror film kind of things, that, that exorcism and the incantations and the murder. But don't miss this, 2 Corinthians 11.4, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's appealing. He's manipulative. To the untrained, unaware mind, his tactics are not loud, glaring, obvious. It means... We shouldn't be surprised that he would use those same tactics today. The same ones that we see introduced right here. The third chapter of your Bible, his first appearance, are the same tactics that he uses in our life in 2023. Why? He doesn't have to change them. He doesn't need to. They've always worked. They keep Working. And so, Ecclesiastes 1.9, wisdom literature tells us history merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. So church, what do I want to do this morning? I want to expose him. I want to expose him. Do you know why? He's moving and working in your life right now. I don't care how protected you might feel. You're not as strong as you think. You are prone. You are weak. We need to expose this one who hates us. We need to expose this one who does not want our church to move forward, to gain ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's do that work this morning in Genesis chapter 3, the first five verses. Verse 1, 
part B. One day he asked the woman, did God, I'm going to stop right there. Y'all are like, dude, it's too fast. You're moving way too fast through this text. Um, Tactic number one, distance, distance. Why do I say that? The way that Satan shows up and addresses Eve in this moment, the word God that he uses right there, there are two ways of, of using God's name in the first few chapters of your Bible. One is a more general term, a generic term. It's Elohim. The other is a very affectionate, personal, personal, intimate name, Yahweh. Um, You know how many times God is referenced as Yahweh in chapter 2? How many times he's referenced as the Lord God? That's maybe what some of your translations will say. Don't worry, I've done the math for you. 11 times, every time God is mentioned in the second chapter of Genesis, he is Yahweh, the Lord God. And immediately at this moment, Satan comes in and begins to talk to Eve, and he references him as Elohim. This may not seem like the biggest deal, but Satan is talking to the first woman ever created. She walked in the cool of the garden with God knew him so personally, so intimately, made in his perfect image, made to dwell in his presence forever, made to know him and be known by him. And the very first thing that the enemy does is he comes in and how does he reference him? He's no longer as personal. Did he say that? Him over there? You don't even know where he is right now. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking about your life and mine, and I'm I'm wondering to myself, have we been doing things for God when we don't even know him? We don't even feel like he's that invested in our life. If you don't feel like right now this morning, God is invested in your life, what difference does it make if you compromise? What difference does it make if you give up? If you start to not believe, if you ignore him, he doesn't care that much anyways. The lie that the enemy would want to bring is God's just not that concerned for you. Who are you to him? You're one in eight billion. How could he care that much for your life? Christian, don't miss this this morning. Luke tells us that he knows the hairs on your head. Isaiah says that the nations are dust on the scales to him, a drop in the bucket to God. Nothing is big to God. Eight billion people, nothing to God. Jeremiah says that he has loved you with an everlasting love. The psalmist says he knows every time you sit down and stand up. Paul tells us, present all your requests to God. Peter says, give all of your worries and cares to God. He cares for you. Paul says he's working all things, everything in your life for good. That's amazing. If none of that is enough, look at one thing this morning. Look at the cross where God's love and compassion for you will forever be on display. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Christian, You don't 
have to fall prey to the evil one's tactic of distance. Like, if that's all you hear this morning, God is not far from you. God is not distant from what's happening in your moment to moment, what nobody else sees. The hardest parts of your thought life, your emotions, God sees it all. He's there. He loves you. No one is more invested in your life than Jesus is. Did you hear me? No one is more invested in your good than Jesus is. To simply have his favor, his blessing, his closeness changes everything. So why would the enemy not start right there and say God is distant from you? Don't regard him the way you used to when you were a young Christian. You were excited about your faith. You felt like there were things you didn't know about this God and you were learning and discovering who he was and you were blown away by his character and his nature. He's not that way anymore. It's not true. Is it a lie that you're walking in right now? We continue in the second half of the verse. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Think about that question. Did God really say that you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Think about the way that's phrased. Tactic number two, deprivation. Deprivation. The actual command back in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 16. This is what God actually said. The Lord God warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. What does Satan do right here? He takes a positive command and he completely changes its phrasing to make it negative. And what is it communicating? God is withholding from you. God is depriving your life right now. To be his follower, to be a Christian, not worth it. You will not get all the things that you actually want. Here's the lie. God will take more from my life than he can offer to my life. God will take more away from my life than he can offer to my life. And Christians, we know this not to be true. In John 10.10, Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Full, abundant, purposeful, never-ending, fruitful, effective, lived for a cause much greater than our own kingdom, but lived for his everlasting one. I just, I want to remind us this morning, City Light, God's vision for our life is greater, not lesser. Jesus doesn't come into our life to take things from us. He comes to restore us to the way we were intended to be. Don't buy into the lie that somehow you being a Christian means that you're just more deprived. Nothing could be further from the truth. You have been given by faith in Jesus every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's all yours. What belongs to Jesus belongs to you, and he earned it for you, despite your sin. There's no better news. There's no more generosity than the generosity that comes from heaven to those who trust in Jesus. 
That was his purpose, one of many, was to restore to us abundant life. I want to illustrate this by taking you back with me to the college campus. I, I did campus ministry for seven years and worked with college students of all walks of life, uh, for, foreign students, international students. Um, and I'll never forget one day I sat down with a young guy who had expressed interest in having a conversation about Jesus. And we sat there uh, at the University of Nebraska, Omaha um, Hall, and we're talking for probably an hour about his life, about my life. He's expressing interest in our college ministry. Uh, we're getting to places in the conversation that are exciting me as an evangelist. I'm thinking that things are clicking. Um, this guy's understanding who Jesus is. He's understanding the kind of love that God has for him and the lengths to which God has gone to give him forgiveness and restore him to relationship with him. He's understanding the, the pain of sin and the need for repentance. He's, he's making sense of it. Jesus is growing. And, and at, at the end of our conversation, um, he kind of stops us and he says, um, so just to be clear, will meeting with you and, and being a part of this ministry, um, will it, is it going to help my resume at all? I, I'm in a fraternity. I'm in this honors class starts to go on this rant about how if it serves him to be following Jesus and associated with this ministry, um, then, then he's in. Otherwise, it's just going to cost him too much. It doesn't benefit him enough. And I thought, what have we been talking about for the last hour? I felt so much heartache for this guy. He walked away from the table, not choosing Jesus. That is why... Soon after that, when I would meet with a new believer who had professed faith in Jesus, there was one habit, and I would recommend that you do it, no matter how long you've been following Jesus. Get out a piece of paper. Create two columns. In the first column, write the cost of following Jesus. Start to list out everything that it will cost you to follow Jesus. It might cost you friendships. It might cost you things that you want things that your heart desires, things that will give you pleasure, things that you name it. It might cost you that to follow Jesus. That's a long list, y'all. Don't stop there. Go to the second column and write out the cost of not following Jesus. Begin to list as much as you can, all of scripture, what a person is forfeiting to not trust in Jesus. Everything. Life itself. Eternity. Relationship with our maker. All the things that we were created and designed for. Forfeited. Don't fall for tactic number two, Christian. God is not depriving you. He is generous toward you. If we move on, verse 2, moving at a really, really fast pace here. Eve responds, of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, we're going to come back to that section next week or the week after. We will visit what happened here because Eve was not the original person 
to hear that command from God. It was passed on to her by a certain someone. We're going to have that conversation. What I want to move us into is what Satan says next. So blatantly. Verse 4, you won't die, exclamation point. Just a declaration of complete opposite of what God says. Like, believe me, I'm telling you, you won't die. Tactic number three is doubt. Satan has been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. In John 8, Jesus says that he has always hated the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. He is a liar and the father of lies. That makes this book, these words, that much more precious. Where do we turn in life but here for the truth? Where do we know we have a solid rock on which to stand? How much in your life, this is just a question for self-reflection, right now, are you tempted to not believe something that is said black and white in Scripture? Maybe it's not comfortable. Maybe it, it, it bucks up against something you feel. Satan loves doing that among us. And here's the thing. Satan and the flesh will present, you know this, we all know this, a thousand reasons and even more than that to show how good it would be to disobey God's command. Donald Barnhouse says the only safe course is to trust implicitly in what he has said, God, and do not lean on our own common sense. This comes from the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Y'all, we live in a world that puts more and more and more and more weight on our own understanding. I mean, that's where we're all being pushed. That's the stream that we swim in, is we need to come to a better understanding. We need to rise up and have a, 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 an awakening in our mind to understand things better. This is the work of the enemy. God has preserved and given us truth. And anything that stands against that is a lie. Would the declaration of our church be, let God be true and every man a liar? Not, not because we want to be rambunctious and we want to fight some battle. But think about that. Let God and his word be true and every man a liar. Why would that not be what we declare and how we live? I want to move us forward here. Genesis 3, 5. This is where it gets just wild. Not only does Satan defy and deny what God says, but he also becomes his translator. Look at verse 5. God knows, speaking for him, that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Tactic number four. Last one. Death. Death. This is Satan's work from the very beginning, is to take something that God creates good and to counterfeit it. It's to take something that God creates that is good, very good, and to pervert it. He does this with Jesus when he tempts him in the desert, in the wilderness. What does he use to tempt Jesus? God's word. He says it's written in the scriptures and recites something to Jesus. The only defense that Jesus has is knowing the truth. The only defense that Jesus has is understanding the context 
of why and when God said that. So here's what I want to encourage us with. Isaiah 5.20, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. This text right here, your eyes will be open. This is a false new birth. We are wired to search for and look for and long for some kind of new that's finally going to open up and unleash things that are broken in our life. We're looking for new solutions. We're constantly searching for love in the wrong places. We are always looking to do what Satan says here. Your eyes are not open. God pulls wool over them. Where else you you go, that's going to open your eyes. That's going to expose you to what is true. And here's the lie. Sin will meet my need in a way God can't. Sin will meet my need in a way God can't. The old Puritans would say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin promises life, church, but it gives death. Sin promises pleasure, but it leads to shame. It promises relief, but it leads to more burden. Can I get an amen? Amen. Sin promises freedom. What does it lead to? Slavery. Some of us are stuck in life right now. There's something that we cannot shake. Notice the progression of these passages. Satan doesn't come to Eve and say, hey, I'm the serpent. You won't die. No, no, no. He comes and says, did God, Elohim, really say? Did he really say that? He's trying to deprive you. That you must not eat from any doubt. There's a progression here. Do you understand the progression? Are you seeing the way he sneaks in? It's cunning. It's shrewd. He does this in our lives. Destruction in our life. Death in our life. Failure in our life. It comes from small compromises and small advantages that the enemy takes that begin right here in our mind. They move to our heart and then they move to our hands. This is his aim. This is his tactic. This is why, church, we need to care about strongholds that are holding us. It it starts with a temptation. It moves to a foothold. It moves to a stronghold. You know, there's something we do in our church. In our city groups, many of you have participated in this, we have what's called a stronghold experience. We don't do this because it's cool. Um, We do this because it's helpful. And it has the potential to completely change lives. Can Can I ask a question? Can we please stop pretending? Can we please stop pretending? Like I know you're at church and you... You know, you you put on the clothes and you came here and you got your coffee and, you know, like this is what you do on Sundays. I get it. Can we stop pretending like right now in this room, every single one of us does not have something where the enemy has taken advantage? Can we stop pretending that we're not prey to the evil one? Can we stop pretending that we're so strong and that we're not weak? And can we stop, please, church, can we stop hiding? Where else are you going to go In in what other place are you going to be where there is freedom for you to actually be honest? Freedom for you to be weak. Freedom for you to, to drag things out of the dark into the light 
in a community of people who are going to help fight with you and for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have been going to church for so long and you're still stuck in the same patterns, the same stuff that you were stuck in 10 years ago. What good has it done you to come to church every single week and never address that one thing and say, God, I want to be done with it. I want to be free from it. I want to walk in holiness. I want to surrender it to you. Finally, finally, I want to be done. This is why we get into gender-specific groups of men and women. And we say, where are you fighting spiritual battles? How can we aid you? Listen, to not be in that kind of community right now in your life is to set yourself up for failure. To, to not be a part of something that's happening in our church where people are coming together and, and linking arms and saying, we're going to fight this fight together. It's not going to be in our strength. It's going to be through the might of God, in his power, in his strength. The enemy is not going to have a stronghold in our church anymore. I'm so ready for us to be a church that is participating in what God is doing in this world. Did you know why Jesus came? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Right now, across our city, other churches are meeting, and Jesus is freeing people from strongholds. Right now, in this room, people are going on a journey with Jesus and being freed from strongholds. Right now, across the globe, Christians who are bowing their knee to Jesus, surrendering their life to him, welcoming his power, making their heart, his dwelling place, are experiencing liberty that they have never experienced before. Let's stop pretending like this world is not underneath the power of the evil one. Let's stop pretending like our neighbors, our peers, our family members that we love are not being deceived by an evil, dark power. And let's stop pretending like we don't hold the only sure solution to it the one who tramples the evil one underfoot, the one who in the end will cast him away forever to have no influence in this world. My prayer for our church is that we would be aware. It's that we would stand firm. It's that we would cast a rebuke toward the evil one and that Jesus would have his way among us. But you know what? That does not happen. If we don't have awareness, it doesn't happen if we're not willing to fight. It doesn't happen if we see these tactics and continue to let them do the same thing. You all have heard the definition of insanity. You, you've heard this. It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Right? How have you been relating to what we're talking about this morning? I want to pray for us a, a blessing this morning. I want to ask God to do something in this room. Um, a sort of a holy moment, and I would invite you to participate with me. Let's pray. God, this is your church. Set apart for your name's sake, Jesus. We rebuke the evil one, every tactic, every scheme. Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now that you will, in a supernatural way, by faith, bring freedom in this room. We rebuke the tactic 
of death. And we invite spiritual life in you, Jesus. We rebuke deprivation. And we invite awareness of the fullness of your grace and your generosity and your blessing on our life. We rebuke doubt. God, we doubt our doubts right now. In Jesus' name, we cling tightly to your word and trust you. Oh God, right now in City Light Bennington, would you create a fresh start for people? If there are people in here who do not know you, oh Jesus, would they understand that there's nothing more sweet, nothing more freeing, there is nothing by definition more life-giving than to follow you and to know you. And I'm asking by your strong hand and your strength, you would tear down strongholds in this church. Break chains of addiction. Break generational curses that have plagued families. God, bring about revival here. Let us walk in holiness and not even be surprised because you are among us. You are in us. Nothing can thwart your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.